So I don't know if you were listening to this story or not, but it was kind of a dark passage, right? It was pretty, pretty dark. It's not your usual Christmas story. And if you were listening to this passage I, and you were taking it seriously, it probably raised a few questions for you. Like, why in the world did this preacher man pick this dark story for Christmas? Or why did I bring my friend on this Sunday when the preacher's going to preach on this particular passage? Or how can I sneak out of here with no one seeing me? Well, those are all relevant questions. But the most important question is this. Why did God include this story in his collection of Christmas stories? Well, you could say that the answer is because that's what happened, right? But you know what? There were a lot of other things that happened also that were not included. And so why did God include this dark story in the collection of Christmas stories that we find in the New Testament? Well, God knew that this story would help us understand Christmas better than all of the other stories that he left out. This dark, this dark story sheds light on the meaning of Christmas. So here's the plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the story in its context, and then we'll draw out three lessons about Christmas, and then we'll apply those lessons to our hearts and lives. So if you're following along, we have a handout in the bulletin, and we begin, our story begins after Jesus is born. In fact, this story takes place about two years after Jesus was born. And the Magi, what we read is the Magi came to see him. And you may know the Magi as the three wise men, or you may know them as we three kings of Orient are. And so the question is, are they Magi or wise men or kings? Some people say they were priests. Some people say they were astronomers. Some people say they were astrologers, like fortune tellers. One tradition even gave them names like Balthazar and Melchior and Caspar, or pronounced Casper like the friendly ghost. But there's no factual support whatsoever. Who knows where they came up with those names? One tradition says that there were three wise men. Another says that there were 12. The Bible doesn't actually say. We heard there were three gifts. Let's call it one gift per wise man. So there must have been three wise men. We don't know. And we don't even know where they came from. Just that they came from a great distance from the east, and, and so they were Gentiles and not, not Jews. We don't know their occupation. We don't know their names. We don't know their number. We don't know their nationality. So whoever they are, they show up in Jerusalem and start asking around, where is this one who is to be born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. And this raises even more questions, doesn't it? Like, how in the world did these guys know about God's promise to send a, a Messiah, the king of the Jews? I don't know. And how did the wise men know that it was his star? I don't know. And if this star was unique, what did this star look like? I don't know. Maybe it looked like that thing that was hanging over the, the sky on Friday night or whatever that thing was. Did you guys see that? I, maybe it looked like that. I have no idea. The scriptures are silent about all of this. 
So there's a lot that we don't know, but there is one thing that we do know with absolute clarity and certainty. We know their purpose. The Magi say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. That is what we do know about them. And did the author here, did Matthew, I mean, did he know more about the Magi? He probably did. But whatever else he did know, he sets it all aside because the important question is not who or what or where or how. The most important question is why. Why did they travel across all of that line, miles and miles and miles and miles, for for over a year probably, uh, to, to meet this child? Why did they do that? Here's why. To worship this newborn king. Now, when King Herod heard about this, he was furious. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm king of the Jews. But he wasn't even a Jew. He was given that position and title by the hated Romans who were an occupying force among the Jews. And his job was to keep the Jews in line. And history tells us that Herod was a brutal, absolutely brutal, ruthless dictator. And any threat to his power, whether it's friend or family or foe, was dealt with swiftly and with no mercy whatsoever. So when he hears that these magi from the east show up to worship this newborn king of the Jews, he is absolutely furious. In fact, the original language uses a word to describe someone who is absolutely shaken to the core. It is, it's a word to describe this intense distress driven by fear and rage. But Herod was not the only one distressed by this news. Matthew tells us that all of Jerusalem was disturbed. You know why? Well, the people in Jerusalem feared Herod's response. I mean, they know that he takes drastic action to eliminate any threat to his throne. They know that they will be crushed by collateral damage. They know that brutal suffering is just around the corner for them. Anybody here remember uh, that movie um, called uh, The Last King of Scotland with Forrest Whitaker in it? A few people. Forrest Whitaker won an Oscar for his portrayal of Idi Amin, this ruthless dictator in Uganda for the, in the 70s. Hundreds of thousands of people were murdered because of him. And Whitaker won because he captured this, this profound combination of fear and rage. Idi Amin knew that people hated him, wanted him dead, and, and he'd be shake up, become so shaken by fear and rage, he would weep and then lash out in brutality. This is the disturbance of Herod. This is the dread of the Jews. So Herod craftily calls together the, you know, the local religious experts and he puts on his best face and he pre- pretends to be sincerely interested and he, and he asks them, you know, so where is this Messiah? Where is this king of the, 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 the Jews? Where is he supposed to be born? I mean, it sounds pretty cool. And they tell him, in Bethlehem, for the prophet Micah foretold it. So after the religious leaders leave, 
Herod secretly calls in these magi that, that showed up. And he probably gives them the royal treatment, wines them and dines them. He acts like he's genuinely interested in them and in their mission. And he says, I too want to worship this newborn king. But Herod is a big fat liar because he doesn't do anything like that. Herod has his own mission. And he needs one piece of information from them to fulfill his mission. So he asks them, so when exactly did the star appear? Well, apparently he won the Magi over and they didn't suspect an evil plan because they tell him. When Herod finds out, he sends them on to Bethlehem. Go and, and carefully search for this child. As soon as you find him, let me know so that I can go worship him too. And so the Magi, Magi head out to, to Bethlehem and the star continues to lead them and the star stops over the place where the child was. And the star, no matter what nativity you might see in the nativity scenes, the star did not stop over the stable where Jesus was born. This was after that. After Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary decided to stay in Bethlehem instead of returning to their home in Nazareth. And by the time the, the Magi show up, Jesus is about two years old. And so finally, after all the traveling and all this time, the wise men get there. Imagine the, the excitement. Their, their travels are, are almost over. Their, their efforts are about to be rewarded. This, this mystery is about to be solved. Imagine the excitement they must have had when they knock on the door and the door opens and they finally see the child with Mary. And they bow down and they worship and they open their treasures and they give him gifts. Now get this, later that same night, they were warned not to go back to Herod. And so the next morning, they get up and go home. After all of that, they traveled all of that way, all of that time to leave the next morning. They went to worship the newborn king. They did and go home and it was all worth it. And so this brings us to the second half of this story, the escape to Egypt. When the Magi left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he tells Joseph, get up, take the child and, and his mom, and escape to Egypt. Herod is searching for the child to kill him. And so Joseph gets up in the middle of the night, and he immediately takes the child and his mother to Egypt. And so when Herod finds out that he was outfoxed by, by the Magi, he was furious. And what does he do? What does evil Herod do? He gives orders to kill all of the boys that are two years old and younger. Can you imagine that? And not only in Bethlehem, but also the area surrounding Bethlehem, just to make sure. So Herod decided on that age because of the time he learned from the Magi. And I, you know what? This is difficult for me to imagine how horrible this must have been. The nightmare of this. This week online, I saw 
paintings from the 1500s and 1600s um, by, by artists like uh, Bruegel and Rubens, oil painting of what's been called the Massacre of the Innocents. They tried to show in these paintings the savage brutality of the soldiers, the horror of the parents, uh, the, the despair of the children. And Matthew reco- uh, records that all throughout the land of Israel there was weeping and great mourning for the children's parents refusing to be comforted because their children were no more. A few years later, Herod dies. And the angel appears again to Joseph in Egypt and says, you can return to Israel now. Those who seek to kill the child are now dead, but don't go back to uh, Judea for Herod's son is ruling there. So Joseph takes the child and Mary back to Nazareth in Galilee. And that's how the story ends. And I think that there are three lessons for us here. We learn one from the Magi, one from King Herod, and one from the child himself. Three lessons that I think can change your heart and your life this Christmas. So real quickly, three lessons about this Christmas child. And the first one is this. This child is the king of kings. We learn this from the Magi. The Magi aren't, aren't Jews, they're, they're Gentiles. And, and, and so why are they seeking the newborn king of the Jews? Well, somehow they know this Old Testament promise that God will send a king to Israel and this king will rule over all the earth. Maybe you heard Psalm 72, which says, the kings of distant shores will bring tribute and gifts and all kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. And so they set out to find this king. And the trip was long. I mean, it could have taken, like I said, a year or more. The trip was difficult. The trip was extremely dangerous. So what in the world kept them going? It was not the star. The star led them, but what was it that drove them? It was this strange desire, this this deep longing that the power of God's Spirit was driving them to seek out this newborn king. Now, here's what I know. In a group this size, there are some of you here this morning you find yourself surprised by a strange and new desire to know God that's just shown up out of nowhere. And you don't understand it. You don't know where it's come from. And you're wondering, am I just emotional? Or, or maybe it's psychological? Or maybe I'm just stressed out. Those things could be involved. But I'm telling you this morning, if that's happened, you know what that is? That is God's Spirit stirring your heart to seek the newborn King. And here's how you'll know if you have found Him. Like the Magi, you will be filled with wonder, you will be filled with awe, and you will be filled with the desire to worship Jesus. Now, others of you, probably most everybody else, you've you've already come to Jesus. I have a I want to ask you something. I want you to think back. Do you remember when you first came to Jesus, when you first saw Jesus for who he is and what he's done, and it just kind of just 
just overwhelmed you and knocked you over? Do you remember those days? Those were amazing days, weren't they? I mean, it just changed your, your whole life. And then all of the brokenness and everything, all of a sudden life got like simpler, right? Because all of a sudden you had perspective. You understood the world and the way things are and the way things that, that should, should be. It was all the wonder of God's love in Jesus about worshiping Jesus, but then it got complicated. Uh, uh, people started trying to maybe manipulate you or something and say you have to learn this and do this and not, not do that, and that, that somehow became more important than, than anything else, and soon the wonder and the joy and the freedom were just gone. The Magi teach us that the whole purpose in life is to worship the King of kings in wonder and awe and joy and relief and faith. And then everything else falls into place behind that, right? Then, then you're filled with the desire to be loyal and to love Him and to live for Him. And then next, this child comes to overthrow all other kingdoms. And we learn this from King Herod. Why is Herod disturbed by the news of the newborn king? Why doesn't he go and worship him? Why does he try to kill the newborn king? Because he wants to be king, right? See, I want the power and the pleasure and the praise. It is my throne. I'm not giving it up for anybody. You know who else doesn't worship the newborn king? All of Jerusalem. Even the religious leaders. I mean, these religious leaders, they know that the messianic king is to be born in Bethlehem. They know that, that his birth would have worldwide significance. And now the magi from distant lands have followed the star to worship this newborn king. But these religious leaders won't even travel the eight miles or so to check it out and see what's going on. In fact, they're disturbed, fearful, and angry about the news. Why is that? They wanted to be their own king too. You know what's interesting about this? This immoral Herod and these seemingly moral religious leaders both refuse to worship the king of kings because both the immoral and the seemingly moral want to be their own king. And so what that means is no matter how different, you know, moral people and immoral people may look on the surface, underneath, they both refuse to bow to King Jesus for the same reason. They want to be their own king. So how about us? What about our own hearts and, and lives? I want you to look at your own heart and life this morning. And, and, and you know, I got to do this too. Because I'm telling you right here, right now, um, despite, like what I said a couple weeks ago, despite what you all think, I don't wake up in the morning with a giant halo for my big giant head and just float across through life because I'm so holy, right? And so awesome. No, Jacob, I don't. I know you think so, but I don't. 
There are times when I don't worship King Jesus. I'm telling you, I am no different than you. I need a Savior as well. We all have areas in our hearts. We all have areas in our lives that do not glorify King Jesus. And here's how I know. Here's a diagnosis that I I can do for myself and you can do for yourself. And ask yourself this question. What is it that fills my heart with fear? What is it that fills my heart with anger? Or what is it that fills my heart with both fear and anger at the same time? Because usually fear or anger is driven by fear. So what is it for you? Anything come to your mind? What keeps you up at night? For me, when I experience brokenness in my own life or in the lives of people that I care about, I can get filled with with fear or anger. I I know, I know how things ought to be, right? There are things that are messed up and I need to fix it. I need more control to fix those things, but I can't. So if I can't have control, I'll have comfort. But then that's empty. And so I feel helpless, I feel disturbed, fearful, angry. Here's what I learned about me. This might be helpful for you, I don't know. I hope so. Here's what I've been learning the hard way, because I learn everything the hard way. There are times when I have the spirit of Herod. I want to be my own king. I demand that life should be the way that I think that it should be. I want to be in control. I want to have things my way. And when I'm disturbed, when I'm fearful, when I'm angry, you know what's going on there? King Jesus is graciously and lovingly and patiently overthrowing my pathetic little kingdom. My pathetic, self-centered, selfish little kingdom that ruins my own life and the lives of those around me. So this overthrowing of my kingdom is this incredible, mind-blowing, loving act of grace. Setting everything that's wrong in the world right. And how does he do that? How does he overthrow our, our kingdom? By by, by shaming us, by zapping us with lightning bolts, by, by twisting our arm and making us cry, uncle? Well, our last point, this child changes, overthrows kingdoms through weakness. Did you notice that the central figure in this story is not some rich powerful political leader or general or businessman. I mean, the central character of this whole story that, that, that's talking about how the world is going to change is a little child. Everything that happens revolves around him. The Magi come to worship him. Herod's anger and fear is stirred up because of him. Joseph and Mary flee uh, to protect him. Herod kills babies to eliminate him. This little child is central, and rightfully so. Matthew tells us that this child is Emmanuel, and what 
does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. God in the flesh. So what's going on in this story? I mean, why is, why is the king born in tiny little old Bethlehem? Why, why must God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, why must God flee for anybody? Why does he have to flee to Egypt? Why does God's birth lead to the, the massacre of, of the innocents? And, and when God returns from Egypt, why does he got to go to Nazareth and, instead? I mean, if this really is God, it doesn't look like he has much power control at all, right? Yet four times in the text we're told these things happened to fulfill what the prophets said. And do you know what that means? That means that God was not surprised by any of it. God was not thrown off guard. This means that weakness was part of the plan. Why does he come to us in weakness? He comes to us in weakness because he came to us to die. To overthrow our kingdoms without destroying us. Nobody else does it that way. On the cross, he died for all our sin, especially our sin of trying to be our own king. Crucified, dead, buried, but on the third day, he rose victorious over death and evil and eternal judgment. He ascended to his throne, and now by his spirit, he is advancing his kingdom of grace in us and throughout the world. And do you know how he does that in us individually? And, and as a church here in Escondido, you know how he does that in us? It's not through our, our mighty deeds, but through weakness of repentance and faith. It's not through flashy programs. Everybody wants a cool program. It's not through flashy programs. It's not through hotshot pastors. It's through weak people. Weak people who are determined to be the first to confess our sins to one another and ask for prayer. And do you know how he advances his kingdom of grace in the world? It is not through political strategies it is not through legislation, but through suffering as we joyfully lay down our lives in loving service voluntarily for our neighbors in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Foolishness, right? That's how God works. And where do we get this ability to be weak and suffer for Jesus? We get it where the Magi did. We get it by worshiping the newborn king. We get it by worshiping King Jesus, being filled with awe and love and loyalty. This is how the kingdom of God advances in our lives and throughout the world. And all glory goes to the King of kings. Amen?
Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you so much for your patience with us. And God, I I pray, Lord, that that you would continue uh, to, to graciously call us to depend on you and to build our lives upon you because so often we build our lives on these other things that just let us down and rip us off. But you are our rock, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can trust you because you make a promise to send a deliverer, a savior, and the person of Jesus, and you kept your promise. And so, God, I pray that you would renew our faith in Jesus, that you would renew our loyalty to King Jesus, that you would help us to see that this was not oppression but but real freedom. And God, I pray that all of us, every single person here, that you would give us the humility to freely and without any any hesitation to express our our, our need and our dependence for you, that that you would give us the the, the urgency and the willingness to to confess the sin in our hearts and and lives of of wanting to be our own king, deciding for ourselves what is right and and, and wrong, and being just totally blind to how we ruin our own lives and the lives of people around us. And so, God, I pray that we would see your grace in the story of the birth of Jesus, who came to live for us and die for us, and rise again to give us new life, the way life should be, that is a greater blessing than we could ever imagine in this lifetime. We pray these things in your name.